Hello, welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. The weaponization of anti-Semitism to close down criticism of Israel is nothing new. I mean, the former Israeli minister, Shilomot Aloni, described it as a trick that they always use. And it's even being used today to suppress opposition to the genocide in, in Gaza. Now, one of the country's leading critics of Israel is David Miller, who lost his job as a sociology professor at uh, Bristol University when he was sacked for his critique of Zionism. And I'm pleased to welcome David onto this edition of Resistance TV. How are you, David? Good to see you, mate. Very well, thank you. Very good. Well, let's uh, start then. Just before we talk about your appeal, because I know you've, you've appealed against your uh, dismissal, which was a couple of years ago now, wasn't it? Uh, but before we talk about uh, that, I wonder whether you could just tell us about the it was a vituperative campaign, wasn't it, that was uh, uh, waged against you by the Zionist lobby. Just, just talk us through that, will you, first? Well, I mean, I suppose the campaign against me goes back um, more than a decade, really. Uh, uh, the first time I was ever described as an anti-Semite by the lobby um, was back in about 2010, 2011, when I'd been doing research on the neoconservative movement uh, and its role uh, in the Iraq war and then uh, and afterwards. Uh, and I was uh, described as an anti-Semite then. One of the earliest occasions was I was described by uh, a guy called Shiraz Macher, who used to work for the, uh, uh, the International Center for uh, Political Violence and Radicalization at um, King's College. And at that stage had worked for the Policy Exchange and various other and neoconservative think tanks. And he referred to me uh, as um, uh, hosting an anti-Semite. Uh, so by implication, I, I must be an anti-Semite because I had had an anti-Semite stay at my house. And what he was referring to there was uh, that uh, there was a guy called um, Joel Covell, who I, I met, was friends with, and um, I, I was hosting uh, him on his Scottish book tour uh, for his book called Overcoming Zionism. Now, Joel, as everyone will know, I guess, was an anti-Zionist Jew from New York, uh, and uh, I knew him quite well and uh, hosting him. And of course, he wasn't uh, an anti-Semite. He was an anti-Zionist. And that was the beginning of the kind of allegations that somehow I was uh, racist against the Jews because I consorted with anti-Zionists. Uh, you know, the worst thing you can possibly do is to consort with anti-Zionists, according to these people. So. That, that was the earliest kind of um, attack, and those attacks continued. But it wasn't until I um, arrived at the University of Bristol in 2018 that they really intensified. And uh, maybe if I can just take you through them as quickly as possible. And so after I arrived at the University of Bristol uh, in September 2018, I think in, it was November, October, November, when I did a talk for Olive, a Palestinian students group, small private talk for a small number of students uh, talking about how they could fight back against the weaponization of anti-Semitism. And of course, what happened was that that um, the Zionists had an infiltrator uh, at the meeting who recorded the sessions and they then gave the tape to Harry's Place, the well-known Islamophobic hate blog, and they posted online um, my comments about the need to fight back against Zionism and uh, against the IHRA definition, which was weaponizing anti-Semitism. So that was the earliest indication that they were ramping up a campaign against me, which involved, as I said, an infiltrator, covert infiltrator. Uh, and then 
three months later, I gave a lecture on my course, uh, which I'd been given when I arrived at uh, Bristol called Harms of the Powerful, uh, where we looked at corporate and state power and uh, crimes. Uh, and one of the lectures in February of 2019 was on Islamophobia, where I discussed the, the uh, theories that I developed in my book, uh, my co-edited book called What is Islamophobia, where we discussed what we called the five pillars of Islamophobia, where we said, first of all, that the backbone of Islamophobia is the state and the counterterrorism apparatus, the intelligence services, the police, etc. But that there were other social movements who were engaged in helping to produce Islamophobia in the society and to push it further, to push the state further into more and more authoritarian responses. And amongst those social movements, one of them was the Zionist movement. And so I talked about the Zionist movement for perhaps three or four minutes in a two-hour lecture. And then some complaints were made uh, um, anonymously on, beh uh, on behalf of two students who were in the class uh, by an Israel lobby group, the Community, Community Security Trust, and they launched a campaign against me. The, the, the complaint was rejected by the university because the CST was not a student. They, the university gave the students all sorts of guarantees about anonymous complaints, but the students didn't want to make complaints. So the CST recruited another Israel lobby group, the Union of Jewish Students, and had their president write a complaint and managed to get the president of the local Bristol uh, Jewish Student Society to sign on to the complaint. And so that complaint was accepted because that particular student, the president of the Bristol Jewish Society, Nina Friedman was her name, was a student at Bristol, although of course had never been my student, uh, had never taken any sociology classes and never spoken to anyone uh, who had ever been to any of my classes. I mean, she admitted this in the investigation process. Uh, and they took that, they, they accepted that complaint, which they shouldn't have done. Not because all of the matters complained of, including statements I had made you know, five years before I had arrived at Bristol, not least because the, the, the complaint was out of time and uh, none of it should have been accepted. Anyhow, it was accepted uh, and then it was rejected by the person who investigated it, who was the dean of the faculty at the time. So that was the first time that I was cleared of anti-Semitism. Uh, and the student complained about that and the university then said, uh, the student complained that the, the complaint hadn't been taken under the IHRA. Yeah the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance yeah. definition, yeah. because the, the university hadn't, hadn't adopted that. So they, the university said to her, not, well, she, didn't, she didn't ask for this, but the university said to her, oh, well, we're thinking about having the IHRA here, but we haven't debated it yet, and it's going to be a few months yet, so would you like to pause your complaint <laughs> while we consider whether we change the rules under which the complaint might then be taken? And she said, oh, yes, that, that would be fine. Indeed. And then, of course, she continued as president of the JSOC, along with the other, uh, uh, the Union of Jewish, Jewish Students, etc., campaigning at the university for the IHRA to be introduced. And indeed, they had a picket outside the meeting uh, later in the year when the university decided um, to actually adopt the, the definition and all its examples. Now, they, the original plan the university had was to adopt the uh, a definition, but not with the examples. Uh, and as, as a result of the, the demonstrations led by the Union of Jewish Students, they changed their mind. They were bounced into accepting this full thing by by the Zionist Students Group, because yeah. of course that's what the uh, Bristol Jewish Society is. It's a member of the UGS, which is formerly a Zionist organization, as I have been saying for some time. Yeah. And so then what happened was that um, 
they changed the rules and then they resurrected the complaint and they they um, looked at my complaint under the new rules of course total breach of natural justice yeah. and they appointed a QC uh, and the QC looked it's, remember this is during lockdown looked at, at, the, at the complaint and all the different things that I had said over the years and concluded that there wasn't a single sentence or clause or uh, punctuation mark which I had ever said which was anti-semitic yeah and so by the and this, so this took from February 2019 to December 2020 and I was cleared and given a full uh full um uh clean bill of health not never said anything anti-semitic no case to answer hadn't done anything wrong uh and uh, that was that so it seemed and then six months six weeks later i came on a, 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 a labor against the witch hunt program yeah uh, and i said look i've been attacked and complained about by the head of the jsoc and the head of the union of students and i didn't name the particular students at the time um yeah. Was referring to the the organisations, uh, and um, then all hell breaks loose, and the, the the campaign against me ramps up, and uh, all uh, you know huge numbers of Zionist organisations, you know more Zionist organisations than most people can count or, yeah. or know names of, wrote in to ask for me to be sacked. I had over a hundred MPs and members of the House of Lords call for me to be sacked. There was all sorts of uh, stuff from the Office for Students and from. Uh, people writing in letters and uh, uh, they, there was the creation one of the best ones was the creation of this uh, new lobby group which uh, appeared and then disappeared which was called something like you know uh, uh, parents of jewish children for safety of jewish students or something like yeah that. yeah <laughs> and um they made all these complaints and what happened then was that the university the rules are supposed to be that you uh, if you complain about a member of staff, either students or staff complain about member of staff, that there's an investigation. But there was no, there were no formal complaints. No. There was a, a campaign in the press. Yes, there were houses, uh, house, there were questions in the house, etc., uh, etc. Et but there was no formal complaints. The university took upon itself to, to do a further investigation, and they appointed the QC again, who looked at my remarks and said not a single thing I'd said was anti-Semitic. Uh, and or uh, breached uh, equality legislation was in any, any way uh, problematic legally uh, and uh, they said well that's very nice but nevertheless we're still going to sack you because yeah. you've upset some students and so and so that's that's that that was the end of that process and that was in October 2021 I then appealed to the university they rejected the appeal uh, I then went to the employment tribunal which was finally yeah. heard in October, from October to December last year, and we're now in the, the place of um, of waiting for the judgment in that case. Uh, yeah, we'll come on to the uh, we'll come on to the tribunal uh, in a second, and, and how that went because I was uh, privileged to uh, be able to observe some of it, and it was quite quite astonishing. But just before we go into that, though, Dave, I wonder whether you could say a word or two about how is it that they keep getting away with weaponizing anti-Semitism. I mean, you know, as you say, you've been subject to it for many, many years now. I have many, many victims of around the country. They're even using it, as I was saying in the introduction, to uh, try and um, close down a criticism of the genocide in Gaza. And yet we've had, you know, Shilamet Eloni, who, you know, I regularly quote over 20 yeah. years ago, saying it's a trick we always use. I mean, you know, a former Israeli government minister on the record saying it's a trick that we always use. And yet this trick, it seems to be being 
played over and over again uh, with a great deal of success. How, in God's name, are they able to keep getting away with weaponizing anti-Semitism like this? Although I think the wheels are coming off a little bit with their attempt to weaponize it over the genocide. But, I mean, it has been a very successful tactic for decades. How are they doing it, David? Well, uh, I mean... That's, that is, I mean, in the end, that's a complicated question, but let, there are several elements to it, of course. One is that they are uh, consciously uh, organized uh, and they have spent a lot of time, effort, and money in working out how to do this. Now, the, one of the key places they've done that from the year 2000 onwards, although they'd started doing this back in the 70s, I mean, arguably even further than that, which I might talk about, but one of the way, key ways in which they've done it is they've they created this thing called the Global Forum for Co Combating Antisemitism. In 2000, it was uh, created by um, uh, the former Soviet uh, prisoner, um, Anatoly Sharansky, or to give him his uh, uh, Zionized name, Nathan Sharansky, who of course became one of the most right-wing um, uh, Israeli ministers, and the, there's, there's a lot of competition for that uh, <laughs> that uh, title. <laughs> uh, and, they, and they set this up, and they, they, they've had periodic um, uh, events, uh, um, um, conferences in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, uh, and that's where they decided how to, and planned how to confuse people about anti-Zionism and to blur the distinction between it and anti-Semitism. And they're very clear about it. You can go on the internet, on the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website and the, on the archives of the conference website. And you can see the, the different working groups they had. I, I quite often quote bits of the working groups where they, they talk about how they're going to do this. And they planned this um, from the beginning. And so, of course, and just to, to, to give you the potted history of how this happened, they, they um, uh, at the very beginning, they um, were able to get um, the uh, what became the IHRA definition um, uh, adopted or uh, considered by the European Union um, Monitoring Centre on Xenophobia and Racism, etc., which is a, an EU body. And it was on their website from 2002 onwards. And then there was some pushback by pro-Palestine uh, uh, um, activists. And what happened was that um, the EUMC you know, eventually declared they hadn't ever formally adopted it, and they removed it from the website when I think when the EUMC became the Fundamental Rights Agency, which is a change in European Union politics, so they 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 had it on, uh, 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 you know, there, and they would point to it. They say this is the agreed definition, and then of course the, the EUMC re removed it, and of course they didn't have it, so they that panicked them slightly, and of course they had to plan at the Global Forum for what they would do about that. So it comes to the period of 2014 or so and they're saying well you know obviously what we need to do is we need to find somewhere else to put this definition and then to have this adopted as the international definition which we will use as a weapon to to you know to combat bds and the palestinian solidarity movement etc and when they alight on the idea that, that what they'll do is they'll have it adopted by the ihra and of course they have allies in, in the ihra it's a zionist front group anyhow and so they have it adopted in 2016, I think it is, they're eventually adopted. And of course, it's then it's, that's the weapon of choice which they put into play to combat Corbyn and the left, and etc. And of course, they do it in Germany and they do it in the US. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that, that's the, at the institutional level, that's how they did it. That's how they yeah. planned this, right? But the question is, well, why why does anyone pay any attention? I mean, exactly. it's, 
the Saudis were doing this kind of thing, you know, uh, saying, you know, nothing wrong with bone saws if we use them, uh, then people would, yeah. you, would not accept that, um, yeah. even though the West supports the Saudis and, and, and arms them to the teeth and yeah. supports them effectively in, in the appalling attacks on Yemen uh, that we saw over the past number of years. Yeah. Um, what, 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 what MPs used to say to me when I challenged them, uh, David, in the House when I was still an MP, was, well, it was in the national interest to support uh, Saudi Arabia. That's that's the uh, appalling excuse they give. But anyway. Yeah, but they don't, I mean, it's more difficult to say that um, supporting Israel is in the national interest, but they do sort of talk about, um, you know, Israel as being an ally in much more of a sense, mm -hmm. you know, the natural ally of the West than they do with the Saudis, because of course the Saudis are, you know, Muslims, right? So yeah, they've got to have some other account of that. Yeah. So, so they, I mean, in the end, you've got to ask the question: Well, why is it that they? I mean, yes, it's the case that, for example, the United Arab Emirates, an Israeli ally, uh, is able to uh, influence British politics. And we've we've seen this over the past number of years. In particular, they were able to influence the Cameron government to uh, through the threat of uh, removing contracts with BAE and, uh, and British Petroleum, BP, uh, to implement uh, an investigation of the Muslim Brotherhood in the UK, yeah. and, uh, which effectively was an attack on all Muslims. Uh, and, and of course, there are examples like that. And of course, you can see examples where obviously the US is very influential in UK politics, but Israel is stunningly successful in in uh, having the policies which are favourable to it passed in the UK, the US, and in many other Western countries. And, and it, you know, it appears, if you look at the record, they're more successful than most other countries. Yeah. yeah more successful than, obviously, than, than our allies, than France or Germany, uh, never mind more successful than, for example, our enemies like Russia yeah. or China or Nicaragua or North Korea or Venezuela or whatever. And you've got to ask the question, well, why is that? Is it because they're, they are, I mean, you can, you can think of this in a number of ways, a number of different hypotheses you could have. Some of them are, are racist hypotheses. It's because, you know, racist hypotheses like, oh, it's because the Jews are clever and manipulative and all that stuff, right? Now, obviously, that's not the case, right? That's not why this happens. But the, but the other sorts of hypotheses you can have are that you know there is the lobby, the Israel lobby, i.e., not the Jews but the Zionists and the, and the Israeli government, and that yeah. they are successful because they are highly organised and funded, and they are able to influence government policy. And of course, they are highly organised and heavily funded, and you, you have been you know cataloguing this for several years now. But is it really that they're, that they're just more effective lobbyists that is the reason? And I think that that's not really. I mean, it's, it explains something, but I don't think it explains everything. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, one of the other explanations is that is the extent to which um, uh, Zionist Jews are embedded in the power structure of the UK and the US in a way which is, which is out of all proportion to their numerical proportions in the population. Uh, and so that's part of the reason, it seems to me, that when it, you know, so whenever you have a particular issue, um, which is which, which has a, the potential to threaten the interests of the Zionist state. That you have people inside the British establishment arguing for Israel's interests. Yeah, and that's I think is is important to see. So when we talk about national interests, quite a lot of the common sense of the political 
um, uh, elite in this country is that is is a Zionist common sense. Mm. Mm. But that's not always been the case, uh, and it's you know there have been occasions when uh, it's been perceived by the security establishment. I don't mean the left. I mean the security establishment that uh, Israel's interests and those of the UK, or indeed of the US, and it's true in the US too, perhaps to a lesser extent, that the, the, Israel's interests are inimical to the national interests of the US or the UK. I mean, and let, let me just give you one or two examples of this, and, and you, it allows you to see that there the, 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 the have been, perhaps even still are, somewhere in the obscure pockets of the depths of MI5 or 6, <laughs> or the Ministry of Defence or something, that there have been people who have been sceptical of the the, uh, the activities of the Zionists and whether their interests and UK interests or US interests are identical. Now, very, very early on this was the case. I mean, obviously, it was the case when uh, the Ergen was bombing the British in the King David Hotel and indeed yeah. when both the Ergen and the Stern Gang were conducting operations in, in the UK, you know, bombing operations, assassinations. Uh, this is free, free Israel. Being established, the Ergen, I think it was, or was it the Stern Gang? I forget one of the two of them, uh, you know, claims to have invented the book bomb uh, when they killed uh, the brother of a, of a British major who, who yeah. they were trying to trying to attack, and they sent a book bomb uh, uh, in uh, disguised in a copy of Shakespeare's plays, which were hollowed out, and they killed his brother by mistake. So there's all that kind of ter terrorism, which we called terrorism at the time, and everybody recognises was terrorism. Yeah. But that at that point we were fighting the Zionists. We understood that they were our enemy, and even after the creation of the State of Israel, uh, that was that continued to be the case. The uh, MI5 discovered uh, a Mossad spy in the Joint Intelligence Organisation around 1950, uh, you know, and moved him out. Um, yeah. And, and if you look at the files that are available. Uh, on the uh, National Archives website, the files say, the, the MI5 officer concludes the case by saying, now we understand that Israel is a hostile state. Yeah. There we are, MI5 saying Israel is a hostile yeah. state. And it, this didn't, this view didn't didn't disappear. Let's remember the famous occasion when Margaret Thatcher refused to shake Menachem Begin's hand because he was a terrorist, the occasion yeah. when uh, the, the Zionists with a Mossad station in London was involved in the assassination of the Palestinian um, a cartoonist, Naji Al Ali. Um, Which reminds what year that was, David? 1987, I believe. Yeah. Uh, when Thatcher was in power, of course. Very recent history, yeah. Yeah, and so and Thatcher expelled the entire Mossad station from London as a result. Yeah. Uh, Thatcher did that, and, uh, and let's remember also that I think it was uh, David Miliband, wasn't it, who expelled uh, Mossad people from London after they used British passports to assassinate. Uh, um, uh, Hamas leader in Dubai, I think. Uh, yeah. I remember the famous footage from the hotel where the Mossad. Yes, 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 indeed. Come up in the tennis gear, go into the yeah. into the guy's room and uh, assassinate him, kill him. That's uh, and that was they used forged British passports, and like again, it's not yeah. allowed. So they were expelled. So there, there, you know, there are times when the British security establishment gets. That the, the the Zionists are um, interests and our interests are not the same. No. And it's the same in the U.S. And we, I mean, you know, just a, one very brief example: the example of Jonathan Pollard, the spy who stole America's nuclear secrets and then mm. was pardoned, I think, by Clinton, wasn't it? One right at the end yeah. of his presidency. 
consistency. And of course, people now say, well, that must be to do with Epstein, and well, maybe it was. But the point about this is that is that um, you know that there were many people in the security establishment in the U.S. who thought that Clinton should not do this, and that, yeah. he, and that this man was a traitor, and that he should be in jail. Yeah. And, that, and people who are who you would otherwise think of as being even slightly neoconservative, certainly paleoconservative, uh, old right uh, amongst the Republican hierarchy. So you, you know it, there are times when that that can happen and i suppose that's the point of t telling all this in some detail is to say well look that can happen again yeah not just that there are uh still a tradition of uh, of, of arabism in the, the foreign office uh, um my old thought yeah. might be but that actually the objective interest might uh change for them and they might begin to see that actually the uh i mean if, if you see israel as an attack dog in west asia that you know that the dog's off the leash yeah and, and something needs something needs to be done about it and I know there clearly will be people in the security establishment who are thinking that now but yeah. they don't have uh the whip hand at present well i mean you've, you've gone into some detail there about how well embedded the you know the zionists are in you know powerful um establishment uh entities in that sense which 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 you know accounts for i guess the uh, the way in which you know the the establishment, the government, the media, etc. You know, respond in a positive way to to Israel in a hostile way to to critics. But um, what about others that you think ought to know a bit better? Really, I mean, I'm thinking of people on the left. I'm thinking about the Corbyn movement and so on, who a lot of them, you know, went along with that. Is it intimidation, in your opinion, or is it something else going on? Well, I mean, it's obviously intimidation. It's intimidation and bullying, uh, and that that's. That's what they do. They just intimidate and bully people, and they think they can get away with it. And you know, quite often they do get away with it. You know, in my case, your case, many other cases we can think of. I mean, I, I saw people just today, um, uh, sort of uh, quote tweeting Michael Walker from Navarra, who's yeah. who's uh, on criticizing uh, what's happening in in Israel, and uh, people underneath saying, you know, but Michael, you you were involved in this process, you know, Absolutely. and. That, and of course, what happened was a whole a whole section of the left. Um, it's not just that they were bullied and that we were bullied and intimidated, and they helped to do the bullying and intimidation. But they they kind of um, imbibed the philosophy and the ideas and the Zionist ideas. And let, let's just—I mean, the, the best example I think really is is that you know the 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 number of people who were expelled from the Labour Party for anti-Semitism in 2017 was one. Yeah. <laughs> and then after Jenny Thornby takes over and the left has a grip on the party, the number of people who are expelled for anti-Semitism massively escalates. I think yeah, 45 exactly. in 2019 and uh, perhaps more than that uh, following that. Uh, and so, of course, the problem with, there was that the, that the common sense for how to understand this was taken from the Zionists. So the people that Corbyn's uh, office appointed to to take on these all these anti-Semitism cases, which resulted in many more people being expelled for on um, you know for, for in almost every case dubious charges, uh, was that they had they they imbibed some of the critique which was um, uh, given to them uh, by the, the lobby groups. Just I mean the, the lobby group which first attacked me in 2019, the Community Security Trust, is a key element here, and this is an extremist organisation which supports 
uh, extremist uh, Zionist groups like Habad Lubavitch, who we've seen in recent days uh, fighting with the New York police. Uh, <laughs> yes. As the, some undisclosed tunnels uh, appear under their their um, global headquarters in Brooklyn. I mean, let's, let's be clear, Chabad is a really far extremist organization. They have uh, rabbis fighting with the IDF in Gaza. Uh, there are Chabad branches in the UK, more than 100 of them, uh, wow. some of which are openly advertising, uh, raising funds for the genocide. So, I mean, this, so, and the uh, community security trust have been supporting, people behind the community security trust have been supporting Chabad for, for decades, for more than four, four decades. Yeah. So the CST is is providing the kind of the bullets for the people inside the uh, the Corbyn's offices, uh, Corbyn's office, who are in charge of the anti-Semitism uh, complaints yeah. to fire. And so they there, there are three of them. They they rather touchingly um, uh, um, list all their qualifications uh, in the leaked Labour report, which they wrote. Um, Harry Haywall, Patrick Smith, yeah. and Laura Murray. Uh, and they talk about how they learned everything they knew they know about left anti-Semitism, which is of course an oxymoron, from Dave Rich of the Community Security Trust, <laughs> or or, um, or the or the from um, that terrible book. Um, hang on, I've got it here. This uh, that's funny. You don't look anti-Semitic by Steve Cohen, an alleged uh, um, leftist, and. Uh, Tony Greenstein still says that he, uh, that in his later life, he came to disavow the book, um, which of course was most recently published by, what's the publisher called? And this is an interesting story. I haven't written properly about this yet. By No Passaran Media, right? Uh, a publishing company, which takes the slogan of the Spanish Republicans fighting yeah, fascism. Yeah, they shall yeah. not pass, I mean, disgracefully. And yeah. uh, publishes crap like this, right? Yeah. And it's run by a guy called John Mendelssohn, um, who we've co of course covered on the show, and uh, Mendelssohn was the past anti-classified. You referring to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Past anti-classified. Yeah. And Mendelssohn, of course, was was the M in LLM, the the New Labour lobbying company, which first mired yeah. New Labour in uh, lobbying corruption stories, and and he's publishing this allegedly. He has this le allegedly left-wing publishing company. And of course, he collaborates with Conservative Friends of Israel, the head of Conservative Friends of Israel. They have a pro-Israel lobby group on the Abraham Accords. And, and it shows you, in a way, um, the way in which the Zionists organize. So that, that on the one hand, you have this notionally left-wing stuff, uh, and then you have right-wing Zionists, and they all work together um, yeah. on common interests. And the common interest is on defending the ethno-state of, of Israel and defending the genocide. So. I don't know exactly where, where I'm going with that, but the, but, it, but the, whole, the whole point of this is that the, the, the Zionist ideas infected the very core of the yeah. Corbyn leadership office. And that, yeah. and that was a problem. It wasn't just that, they, that we were bullied and intimidated, we were, but that they had been won over by these ideas. Yeah. And part of, the, part of the reason for that is that Corbyn had never been an anti-Zionist, really. I mean, he'd always uh, been in favour of the, of the two-state solution, and he hung around with people on the Jewish left uh, who, uh, who, ha who sometimes claim to be anti-Zionist, people like David Rosenberg, the Jewish socialist group, people yeah. like that, who, who actually have a very soft position on Zionism. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that, in, in the end, 
is what did for the Labour Party was that they 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 sort of in, imbibed these ideas which were soft on Zionism and were not properly anti-Zionist and didn't properly understand that actually Zionism is irreducibly a racist ideology, cannot be dealt with, cannot be negotiated with, simply has to be dismantled and abolished. I mean, uh, and uh, there's no other way of saying that. And of course, that's anathema to parts of the left as well. And that, that's partly why I've been excoriated by elements of the left, by the SWP, by the Jewish yeah. Voice for Labour, etc., etc. Uh, and because they don't understand Zionism. And, no. and the reason they don't understand Zionism is because in their ranks are people who are soft on Zionism, who come from that tradition, sometimes no. from the Bund tradition even, which is anti-Zionist, but which in the end, these people, Jewish Socialist Group, for example, is not anti-Zionist, it's no. soft on Zionism. And that is, that's the problem, that we have no. to understand that there is no compromise, that the no. people on the left who are, you know, I mean, I, sorry to, to, to go on about this, but the people on the left who are, who are socialist Zionists, and they say, "Oh well, there's always been a tradition in Zionism to, to have a a, a way of deal of um, you know making a deal with the Palestinians to have a binational state, uh, and you know it's only because Zionism has been taken in a particular direction that there are bad bits to it." And actually, that simply isn't true. I mean, I got I got uh, criticised by, for example, Justin Schlossberg, who I've written with. Yes, I knew that, yeah. yeah. Well, Labour, I think he was collaborated with you, didn't he, on that book? Yeah, that's right. And uh, and he said, well, it's, you know, it's not true and you, you, you misunderstand Zionism. In 1942, the, the Zionists, the, 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 the socialist Zionists believed that there should be a binational state, etc., etc. So I went, had a look, uh, um, as you do when you criticise some factual points. And of course, it was the case that there was a minority position at the Biltmore Conference in 1942. Um, from uh, uh, the leftist Workers of Zion organization, Hashomer Hatzair, the, the furthest left Zionist sect, yeah. uh, which believed in a binational state. Uh, and the, that was a position they managed to hold for three years until 1945. And then they fell in with the, the ethnic cleansers and were enthusiastic participants in the ethnic cleansing yeah. uh, in 47, 48, as, uh, as David Ben-Gurion pointed out. And indeed, as they... First, the first Israeli yeah. prime minister, of course. Yes, and indeed, yeah. as the founder of the British Socialist Workers' Party, um, also pointed out, um, Tony, what's his name? Yeah, I can't recall myself, actually. But, uh, <laughs> his name is, <laughs> we're getting old, David. These names there. Oh, it's terrible. So, so and of course, uh, he, he had been... Um, uh, uh, his his um, original name was Egail Gluckstein, Tony Cliff. Sorry, uh, and Tony, of course, uh, and his then um, uh, to not yet wife Cheney Rosenberg. Uh, Cheney had been on on one of the Hashomer Hatzair kibbutzim, and that's why they broke with Zionism. And yeah. Cliff wrote this amazing stuff on on the on left Zionism in forty six, forty seven. Yeah. All of it is fantastically opposite for today. And what happened then was, that, of course, that they. The Hashomer Hesir kibbutzim were, were, you know, were were involved in the ethnic cleansing, and the and the closest they got to a progressive position was to say, oh well, yes, uh, the Arabs can have their own kibbutzim, right? They they, they can have, and you're like, I'm sorry, they can have their own kibbutzim. You you want Bantustans for the Palestinians, <laughs> and that, and that in the in the end, of course, was, would be what it was because yeah. there couldn't be non-Jews who are members of kibbutz. Of yeah, kibbutz. Couldn't happen, and there and there you see it from the at a very very base of uh, of the most furthest left uh, Zionist yeah. sect, yeah. racism, 
and of course that this is this like same Zionist sect that Tony Ben spent V E oh, yeah. day on a kibbutzim where he saw, he, he was there when as the Nazis uh, surrendered, uh, where Noam Chomsky of course spent time, and where uh, uh, famous, famously as well Bernie Sanders also uh, spent yeah. time on Hashem or Hasea kibbutzim, and yeah. that's why. There's a so on the left. There's a there's a misunderstanding about Zionism. Is yeah. that large sections of the left are are soft on either soft on Zionism or or Zionist? And there uh, were many uh, there were many uh, leading left wing figures in the uh, in the 40s and 50s who were very supportive of, of Israel. You know, people like Ian Mercado, Eric Heffer, Tony Benham, and various others. But uh, so I want to kind of get on to the uh, the. Uh, uh, your tribunal and uh, uh, the basis of your uh, uh, case uh, about uh, anti-Zionism being a protected uh, characteristic. But just before we get into that in, in conclusion and to, to sort of finish up our discussion today, you've mentioned the Community Security Trust a few times. You mentioned them in your opening remarks. You've referred to them again there. And, uh, you know, they crop up quite a lot, don't they? And uh, I think what a lot of people will be surprised to learn is that they are recipients of substantial funding from the British government, aren't they? And also are closely linked to the Israeli uh, security services, aren't they, uh, Mossad? Just just say briefly a word or two about the funding from the government and indeed the, the links with the Mossad as well. Yeah, so the CST set up in um, 1994 um, uh, comes out of a series of previous bodies, the Group Relations Educational Trust, and going right back to the 19... 40s actually the the uh, the um, various uh, anti-fascist groups set up by returning Jewish servicemen and by members of the Communist Party, which uh, you know uh, as we discovered when we looked at this um, uh, some time ago that these are heralded as the um, the, the sort of progenitors of the whole British anti-fascist and anti-racist movement uh, as brave Jewish fighters against fascism. And of course, there's some element of truth in that because they did fight fascists on the streets in the 40s and 60s. But what I discovered when I look back at this, because there was a there was a BBC drama serial called Ridley Road, which uh, which uh, um, looked at this, these organisations, was that the in 1948, the organisation um, which was fighting fascists on the street decided that it would um, it would affiliate to another organization, and that organization was uh, the Ergen, the revisionist Zionist far-right uh, terrorist organization. And indeed, they sent this anti-fascist group sent um, tens of people over to uh, Palestine to uh, participate in the Nakba. And that contradiction at the heart of anti-fascism, I think, has never been properly understood in this country. And the people who were in that organization uh, and its successor organization were people who went on to set up the Community Security Trust. The, the Director of Intelligence, uh, sorry, not the, the Director of Intelligence for the 62 group, as it was called in 1962, was a guy called Jerry Gable, who went on to set up Searchlight, which collaborated directly with uh, MI5 and the Special Branch, and indeed with Mossad. And they, 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 the head of the finance for the 62 group was a guy called Gerald Ronson, who went on to form the Group Relations Educational Trust and then the CST. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the CST has been very closely uh, allied with and linked to the Mossad, not just in terms of the training which Mossad apparently gives their volunteers, but uh, in terms of their involvement in uh, in the, the development of the weaponization of anti-Semitism 
uh, in the 1980s, which at that stage was uh, a, a responsibility of the Mossad, and uh, and the CST were a core part of that. Or the, the the previous uh, organization were core part of that process, uh, of, uh, which where they collaborated with the, with the Mossad. And this is this is well known. And so this is a, an organization which exists to run point, as I've put it before, for the Israeli government. Uh, and of course, what, what it does then is that it um, it targets people on the left, uh, Muslims, uh, who are critical of British foreign policy and uh, want to stand up for the Palestinians and tries to undermine them in, in, their, in their public yeah. positions. So that's, that's, that's the, the function of the CST. And of course, it's been very strongly... I mean, one of its charitable objects in the, in the most recent revision of its charitable objects, it says it's, it, it opposes extremism. But, you know, at the same time, when we, on the Palestine Declassified, we reported on uh, Chabad for the first time. They they put out this briefing saying that uh, we were threatening Jewish, uh, a Jewish religious group and we were racists, etc. But actually, you know, Chabad is an extremist group. Yeah, uh, uh, as, I, as I mentioned already, and, and I could say much, much more about Habad, yeah. uh, which we haven't got time for just now, but no. uh, they're, they're there to defend uh, an extremist group, CSD, and so that's, you know, it's a fundamental breach of their own charitable principles, and, uh, yeah. and charitable, charitable commission, charity commission should be looking at that, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and perhaps they will in the, in the current context. And I think, um, you know, there should be more said about uh, not today because we haven't got the time. Uh, you know about the fact that the government is actually you know throwing money at this outfit. And, uh, you know. Sorry, I, I, I should have said I should have gone to talk about that. Yes, I mean let, let me say very briefly. So yes, the, the government has th- been throwing money at the CST for some time, but I discovered recently, and I haven't written about this yet, but um, that uh, uh, various millions, uh, multi-millions of the money which they got from the Home Office, they had money from other government departments too, but from the Home Office came from a, a part of the Home Office called the Office for uh, Security and Counterterrorism. Now, uh, yeah. people may or may not know this, but that's an intelligence agency. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, the, so the CST has been funded by British intelligence for some years. Uh, and uh, that, people don't understand that. People, uh, people don't really know about that, um, uh, and uh, that's an extraordinary thing as well. And I suppose that the point I would make about that that, that empirical finding is to say, well, the, there's a strong intertwining between uh, British counterterrorism, counter-extremism activity, and yeah. Zionist priorities. So, and it's not just evident in relation to the CSD, but in relation to a whole series of other Zionist groups which are funded directly by the British government. Uh, in, in a way which uh, similar Muslim groups are, sim- are simply not. So I think that, that's an indication of the, the difficulties of actually pushing through pro-Palestinian politics is that actually these organisations are core-funded by the British government itself. Yeah. Well, let's just, then in conclusion, David, get on to <coughs> excuse me, your employment, <coughs> sorry, your employment tribunal, uh, which took, I think, about two years, didn't it, to, to actually get to a, a, a hearing um just say a word or two will you uh well how you feel the the uh, the tribunal uh, went and, and and the basis of of your appeal and what you're hoping to get out of it as it were well there's two things one is um that um i, I was wanting to establish that the uh, university had wrongly sacked me that uh, the process which they used to investigate me was flawed the process that they used to uh, evaluate the investigation and then decide if I should be sacked or, or 
have some other lesser punishment or not have any punishment, that that was flawed as well. Um, and in evidence in the tribunal, it, the, the university's witnesses more or less admitted that their processes were flawed. So given that, one would anticipate that um, the, the, the judge might come to the conclusion that they shouldn't have dismissed me. Uh, we don't know if that's going to happen or not, but uh, obviously we'll have to wait to see the, the judgment. So that's one thing. And of course, I want to show that I was wrongly dismissed. Of course. Uh, and the second thing, of course, is, well, there's three things, isn't there? The second thing is that I wanted to show that I, I have been in no way racist against anybody. Uh, and in fact, I, I'm an anti-racist. Uh, and of course, the Q, two QCs reports that the University Commission showed that. Uh, the university refused to tell anyone that that was the case uh, and have, have shown, shown no willingness whatsoever to tell the truth about what happened in their investigations. And so that's the second thing. The third thing, of course, and this is the most important thing, is the um, argument that I'm making that I was dismissed not for, uh, as the university formally said in the letter, the I think 50, was it 57 pages uh, letter which they can dismiss me with, that I had drawn students into some conflict and this was bad and students had been upset. But that actually, that the reason that they dismissed me was because I had anti-Zionist views and I was manifesting those views in the critiques that I made of Zionism. Uh, and um, that that's the key question which we hope to establish. And if we establish that, we would establish that anti-Zionist views should be protected yeah. under the Equality Act, uh, and that people cannot be sacked for having anti-Zionist views for manifesting them, uh, uh, you know, unless there are additional considerations like like the the way in which they were manifesting were somehow abusive, or which, in, of course, in my case, was it was absolutely not the case. Yeah. Uh, so we have, that's what we hope to establish, and that would establish a principle where where in the UK it would be very very difficult to sack anti-Zionists for, um, for their views. Uh, and in the end, in the in the case, I mean, the the university's witnesses uh, accepted really that um, that it was the fact that I was an anti-Zionist which made my views so uh, repellent to the university, uh, and and that that I think is uh, it was encouraging to see that that evidence. We have to see, of course, how the judge will interpret that. But that's that's the hope. The hope is that we can establish that as a as a principle, and that's why we've been fighting this case. And of course, as you, as you know, such a case like this takes a lot of resources, yes, I mean, a lot of money and legal fees. Uh, legal fees don't come cheap. Um, and um, well, I was going to ask you that, David, because I mean, um, clearly, you know, this is a really important sort of test case, really, because I mean, it's not just about you. As important as that is, because yeah. you've been absolutely terribly wronged, uh, and you know, you should have justice. I mean, I think you know, you should be. They should offer reinstatement, actually, but I suspect they won't do that. But you should certainly be be uh, compensated. But it's not just about you. I yeah. mean, and if we can get this principle established that um, you know opposition to Zionism, which is you know a, a settler colonial racist ideology, which is being manifested now in a genocide in in Gaza, uh, you know this will, as you've just said, protect uh, other other people who have been. And you're not the only one, have you? You know who has been targeted in this way and who's who's lost employment. And this this will protect others, and indeed may give some uh, relief potentially to other people who've, you know, previously been been wronged uh, in yeah. their uh, employment. So it is a crucially important uh, case, but it is incredibly 
expensive legal fees, as we know, are, uh, you know, they don't come uh, cheap and you don't get uh, legal aid, uh, do you, for this uh, case? And uh, yeah. I'd run up a, you know, a huge bill. Um, and it's therefore essential, I think, that we that we widen as, as much as we possibly can, you know, the donor base, as it were. So, you know, just say a word or two, if you can, David, about, you know, how people can can contribute to the uh, the legal uh, costs that you've incurred. Because as I've said, you won't get your cost back. You know, even if you win, unlike in my case, when I went to the High Court against the Labour Party, costs were awarded against the Labour Party. The Labour Party then had to stump up, you know, getting on for £100,000 for my legal costs. You don't have that benefit. You may get some compensation, but you won't actually get any recompense, will you, for the costs that you've incurred for your lawyers. And I have to say... You know, lawyers, as I've already said, don't come cheap. And your lawyers are bloody brilliant. I sat in on most of those days and they were just mustered. So, you know, they were well worth the money, but we've got to find the money. So how can people contribute, David, to your legal uh, fund? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, if I win, I might get compensated. I'll get some kind of compensation um, for lost earnings. I mean, it won't be, uh, it won't actually compensate me for what I've lost, but um, there'll be some kind of compensation for that. But in terms of legal fees, no, you can't get any of the legal fees covered. And that, that's the that's the amazing thing about this. I mean, which people who have not gone through this process, I guess, may, may not understand. So, I mean, how you can co contribute is you can go to the uh, website of the Left Legal Fighting Fund, which is fightingfund.org. And, uh, and you can you can donate any amount, small, large, large, large would be great. But if any amount helps, um, uh, um, hopefully we can reach a target to uh, to cover the legal fees. I mean, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with this judgment. I mean, if it goes uh, for us, uh, it, it's possible the university will appeal. So we may need, to, you know, to continue fighting yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, if they if they do that. And so, yes, it's, it's really important that we uh, seek to establish this principle. And, and if, you know, if we establish it, and if we win they, and they, they appeal, then we'll need to be we'll need to keep fighting to defend the principle. But uh, at present, we are at the stage of you know, needing to cover uh, um, the bills that we, that we have. Uh, and I would, you know, if if anyone can find any way to, to raise resources, that, that would be uh, extremely helpful to us and uh, hopefully to establishing the principle that anti-Zionists cannot be sacked for being anti-Zionists. Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, thanks very much indeed, Dave. It's been a really uh, interesting uh, discussion. I hope our viewers have found it illuminating. I think there's a lot of uh, information that you've imparted there that people will you know, not have been aware of. And so it's been a really you know, useful uh, learning exercise as well. I could tell you were a, uh, you were a, a teacher, an academic, who uh, you know, was used to sort of imparting complicated information in an in a accessible way. Just finally then, David, how can people follow your work? You've told us how they can contribute to the, the fund, but uh, you're active on social media. You also run an organization uh, called Spinwatch, etc. Yeah. Tell us a bit about how people can follow your work. Well, I mean, the, the key thing is is obviously on Twitter. I mean, I saw, saw we saw yesterday, didn't we, that uh, large numbers of uh, pro-Palestine accounts with large followers, uh, following numbers, had been suspended. I think all of them, certainly some of them, are now back on Twitter with uh, with some kind of uh, letter from Twitter saying, "Oh yeah, you're back, but no apology." So, so obviously, you know, given that that. Uh, the Twitter X is under threat. That's a problem. But nevertheless, obviously, the best place is uh, present is is on Twitter. I I uh, I'm there as tracking underscore power. I guess people can find me there. Um, what I'm also doing now is putting all, all of my 
um, back catalog of work on Substack. So you can search for tracking power on Substack and you'll find me there. Uh, and I, you know, I write quite a lot of stuff on, I have a column reasonably regularly on uh, Maya Dean English, I write it for Press TV's website, uh, I'm on Electronic Intifada and Mint Press and uh, also now on, on TRT, this, the Turkish website. But uh, I'm going to be putting all of this stuff on, on Substack and you can find uh, all the stuff there. The stuff that I was talking about, uh, with the exception of those things which I've said I'm not, I haven't written about yet, uh, all of these things are in articles uh, uh, and uh, which you'll be able to find on Substack. So the stuff about Ridley Road and the anti-fascist movement, the this, this stuff about Chabad and all those things are either on my Substack website or, uh, or, or on our show Palestine Declassified, which you can uh, again follow on Twitter or X or also on Rumble and the, the full shows are all available on Rumble and we post clips uh, uh, regularly every week uh, from the yeah. show so people can follow stuff there as well. Great stuff. Great. Well, listen, um, I hope you've enjoyed uh, today. Thank you very much indeed, uh, David, for your yes. contribution. Um, David Miller is a, is a gold mine of information. So if you don't already follow him, please make sure you do, because you won't be disappointed. Loads of really, really useful and illuminating information. Uh, thanks for watching. We hope to be back next week at the same time. So until then, this is Chris Williamson saying bye for now. Hello.